Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about a very important topic for LPs who are investing in multifamily and industrial, really in any sector, and that is market selection. Because as we all know, market selection can uh, make or break any real estate investment, right? And joining me, I have Dan Rosenblum, who is head of investments at Cadre. And Cadre has a very unique approach to market selection that we're going to dive into. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. Appreciate it. You know, before we dive into the nitty gritty of market selection, could you tell us a little bit more about Cadre and about your role there? Sure. Yeah. So Cadre was founded about eight years ago. Um, you know, the, the original mission of Cadre was really to provide more individuals the opportunity to invest in institutional quality real estate, which has traditionally been inaccessible, um, opaque, and an illiquid asset class. Um, so being able to bring on investors who typically don't have that ability and do it, you know, with the best and what we believe the best curated portfolio with the best operators throughout the country. So we look across all asset classes. We look across the, you know, all the U.S. domiciled, um, you know, country, uh, you know, states here, and we find what we believe to be and curate the best opportunities within the marketplace at that time. So, you know, really, it's it's just all about giving people access to to an asset class that's been much more institutionalized in the past. So is is Cadre more of an like an allocator then uh, versus being an operator of sticks and bricks, you know, real Correct. estate projects? Yeah. So you know, we are an allocator who what we'll do is we are fiduciary for our investors and we typically are ninety to ninety-five percent of the equity. Our our operator or development partners tend to be, you know, the five, ten percent. Um, but you know, traditionally, you know, within these structures, these operators and developers are incentivized to drive value and, you know, typically get what's called a promote. So they'll get a little bit more of that, um, you know, of, of the profit on the back end when they succeed. So we try to align, you know, the interest with the investor um, as well as the operator so that our, um, so that our investors can, uh, can generate the best returns possible. Um, that said, you know, we are still a steward. We're still actively asset managing these assets. So what does that mean? Um, you know, typically speaking, in every deal we do, um, we're going to be, you know, we're going to form a joint venture with our operator development partners. Um, and the major decisions always fall within Cadre's uh, realm. So we're actively asset managing it. We're augmenting uh, the boots on the ground, so to speak, whether it's a development deal or whether it's a local operating partner. You know, we're going to be working with them to, to create as much alpha at the asset as we possibly can. But we're actively working with those operators to push the top line and also minimize the bottom line. 
That's interesting. By, and you know, by the way, by the bottom line, I mean the expenses, not the actual income. So I, <laughs> I kind of may have misspoke there, but the reality is, is we're trying to obviously optimize the top line and have the best margins possible for our investors. Absolutely. You know, and the interesting thing there. So you all are finding attractive opportunities, right? Not only attractive markets, but then within those opportunities and aligning, partnering with operators and developers. So with that kind of model, the market selection becomes so, so important, right? Like going, going through that haystack and fi or finding the diamond in the rough, I guess I'm mixing metaphors here. But um, one thing I thought was interesting, I was going through Kadre's website and, and some of your research and materials. So let's talk about the Kadre MVPs. And and I, I think it's it's really cool when a company like Cadre publishes so much detail on your approach. And it's kind of, it, I think some people might think like, wh why are you detailing your secret sauce? You know, why are, why are you giving away the keys to the kingdom? Um, because, you know, you really go into quite a bit of depth with even potential investors about how exactly the process works. And if I may, I'm just going to read a short excerpt because I, I don't want to cross any signals. So Quote, we use proprietary technology to, number one, analyze millions of points of historical data. Number two, generate forward-looking forecasts. Number three, factor in liquidity to supplement our investment team's expertise. And so our process digs deeply into three specific property types, which are multifamily office and industrial in each metro area as we pursue strong risk-adjusted returns to help more investors grow their wealth with us. So a three-step process with uh, market selection. You know, when did Cadre start using this process? Was this something that you kind of did without having a name and then you branded it later? Or, you know, how did it begin? Yeah, no, it, it started from the very beginning when, when our founder, you know, kind of uh, had a little bit more of a technology background. So, um, you know, look, if you think about investing in, like, you know, a hedge fund or, you know, these private equity funds, a lot of them are using algorithms for many, many years to generate alpha. So why not, why not do that within the commercial real estate world? And so we've been working on this. So I've been here for six years. Um, as you said, I, I run the investment program. You'd ask me what, what my role is. So I, I oversee acquisitions as well as the asset management. So, you know, really oversee all the investing side of our business. Um, and when you think about it, you know, when, when I first joined six years ago now, um, this was something that we were, you, you know, we were discussing and utilizing already when I was there. So about two years into the founding of Padre, um, over the years, we've refined it. We've, 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 uh, you know, kind of gone back and forth over, you know, what, you know, what those thousand, um, variables are, um, you know, so we like to co combine, you know, the, the, data science with the, you know, you know, experience that we have from our institutional real estate team, right? So, so one thing that's really, really important, and I think a distinguish, uh, a distinguisher for Cadre is we're not putting out five, $10 billion every year, right? Like some of the big funds. So yeah. what does that mean? You know, the macro is important, um, but not as important as it is for those big funds who have to take macro bets, right? We have the ability to not only look at the macro, which is We'll talk about a little bit more on the Cadre MVP, but also the micro. So just because Charlotte or Nashville, you know, kind of ring true to a lot of people in terms of, you know, hey, 
you know, what is a good macro environment compared to other markets throughout the country, which I think is key. It's, it's you know, what we're trying to find the 15 best markets that we think will outperform not only, you know, on, a, on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis, right? And, and it's also outperform what? It's outperform what the broader market thinks, right? So this isn't just saying, hey, everyone thinks natural is going up. I'm just going to make this up 5%. You know, over the next 12 to 24 months, we look at this data and say, do we think it'll outperform that 5% or underperform? Because generally speaking, these assets will get priced as though, you know, what the broader market thinks in terms of the growth. So if, if we think it's going to be 4%, let's say, it might not be as compelling on a macro basis to have conviction in that market. But you have to dig, you know, deeper, you have to dig into the micro and really understand kind of not just kind of, okay, is, is Nashville a good market, but what are the sub-markets that are better? Where are the jobs going? What kind of jobs and what kind of jobs and incomes match the type of real estate you're, you're looking at, whether it's office, industrial, or, or multifamily, kind of what you had, you had mentioned, Andy. So there's a lot of nuances to it. This, is, this has been a labor of love, and it will continue to you know, be redefined and reshaped over hopefully many, many years as we you'll know, get more and more of a track record at Cadre. And what you'll, you, what you'll know if you kind of paint behind the curtain is, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, our data scientists really, you know, kind of meeting with the investments team, understanding what are factors you look at, you mm-hmm. know, when you look at investments that, that make a market compelling, you know, is it infrastructure spending? Is it job growth? Is it a certain type of job growth? Is it, you know, population growth? Is it, you know, the airport is, you know, has been expanded. So we think that now you can have bigger planes. So, you know, there's going to be more international business. Those are, you know, a lot of the things that we think about, you know, and makes sense to you and I, but like the data needs to back it up. And so what's behind there really gives us a, a, a level of conviction on the investment team side mm-hmm. um, to be able to go to a market and say, hey, look, you know, we think, you know, from a, I call it my educated gut, because uh, I've been in the real estate business you know, since 1996 um, and been investing for, you know, 20 years now. And so when you when you look at it, I say, I think I have a, a good gut. Uh, it's an educated gut, um, but it's, you know, it's augmented by data that really supports how we're thinking about it. Add on another layer, and I think this is where I think we're extremely differentiated, which is we have the data, we have the institutional investor experience from the team, but then we have the best operators in the country, in my opinion, who are going to then be on the ground giving us data that doesn't lag the way that a lot of these research reports do lag, right? You want real-time understanding what's happening in the market. If you're diving in, whether it's Nashville, Phoenix, LA, you need to understand what's going on on the ground. And as an allocator, if you're, if you're looking at markets all across the country, it's really difficult to be the smartest about LA or Atlanta or Charlotte, if, if, you know, in every market, that's why having that local operator that is not only working with us, but also incentivized to generate outsized returns, that's really important for the, for the investor at the end of the day. And so when you're looking at, you know, what we're trying to do from the MVP perspective, it goes back to what I said, it's, we're trying to understand, you know, do we think over the next 12 to 24 months, because it's really hard to forecast this out five, six, seven, eight, nine years, right? Mm-hmm. It's really kind of, let's think about the next 12 to 24 months. Do Does our data tell us that, you know, these markets will outperform the broader, you know, kind of marketplace 
uh, or at least what the broader market thinks is going to happen. Uh, we we layer that in with what you know what the prices are, you know, cap rates of these assets, and the liquidity component, right? And this isn't liquidity like how we think about liquidity trading in and out. This is more, you know, the the generally speaking, in in the United States for real estate, the more liquid the market is, you know, like New York City being probably one of the most liquid markets, you know, the more valuable that market is, all things equal, because mm-hmm. more institutional capital will come in. So you have more buyers, more sellers. It just adds depth to the market. Um, so that factors into it as well, because we might you know, come across a market that looks really compelling, but it's so small that, you know, we're in, in bad times, the liquidity goes away and it's, it generally is a more risky investment. Um, but it's also, you know, are we wasting our time, you know, going to that market and putting a lot of energy and effort if there's not a lot of opportunities for us to buy things? Um, so, so, you, so you want to, you, if, if all goes well, you would enter a market where you could have multiple projects, multiple assets, and really get to know that market? Yeah, I think there is something to be said for scale, Andy, where not just with markets, but with operators, where you do you do spend a lot of you know energy and time up front studying, let's say, Salt Lake City. Okay, That's a perfect right. example, right? Well, we did one deal in Salt Lake City. Well, we have a lot of knowledge there, and guess what happens? Generally, the market hears about a certain firm buying a deal, and you'll get more calls, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where, okay, they're they're looking to get into this market. So it really is an advantage to, to do more than one, unless there's a unique reason not to. Um, but going back to you know these MVPs, the way that we look at it from the investment team's perspective is, I like to, I like to say the 80-20 rule. We wanna spend 80% of our time proactively looking at the markets in the MVP, but we're gonna spend 20% of our time being reactive in markets outside of the MVP with really good operators who may have found an interesting opportunity because I truly believe you can find a good micro deal inside of a bad macro environment. And we wanna have the flexibility to really kind of be able to react to those deals. Cause again, well, could, could back- I, could I ask Dan, I'm sorry to interrupt. I yeah. wanna ask about that though. Cause you referenced, you know, larger funds, larger, you know, asset management firms, they have to take macro bets, right? There's, some investors at the institutional level, like they can't do a deal unless they can deploy half a billion dollars or and that really, I think number one, that can limit you. Uh, number two, it can lower your returns, right? Because there's going to be a whole universe of opportunities that are off the menu if you have to deploy capital, you know, in, in chunks of a billion dollars. So, you know, it, is there a sweet spot, you know, for 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 cadre where a project is big enough that it has scale that it, you know, it's kind of worth that. It's almost like a fixed cost, right? It, not totally fixed, but due diligence and just all these sort of costs that are more or less fixed. Is there a sweet spot of size where it's in that pocket where the institutionals aren't necessarily, they're not competing with you, but at the same time, it's large enough that you can actually deploy significant capital? Yeah, there there is, Andy. And I think a couple of things to, to hit on before that. It's like, First of all, these big funds clearly have done very well, and and they're smart, have unbelievable, um, you know, intelligence and 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 teams in there looking for deals. But yes, they have to put out large chunks of money, and they're generally competing with one another for for those deals. So you'll see the big three or four or five players, you know, bidding on you know auctions for those for those larger transactions. That to me, you know, they need to put out that capital where. 
we look at it, we're a sharpshooter. We, you know, when we look at it and say, okay, we're putting together and we'll talk about it later, Andy, but, you know, the Cadre Direct Access Fund or the Horizon Fund, you know, we're looking to, you know, put out, let's say, you know, seven to 15 deals a year. We're not looking for 50, 100 deals. Like we're trying to be very measured about, you know, the deals we look at. We have a really big funnel. So for every deal we do, we're probably looking at over a thousand opportunities to kind of funnel Whoa, down wow. one deal. So is that, right. is, is that, okay. I got to ask you about that. <laughs> you'd have to, in my mind, at least you'd have to uh -huh. triage that where you would, I don't think you'd want to have an analyst looking at every single deal. I mean, are there some that like basically the algorithm or are just kind of being thrown out right off the bat? Like how, how do yes. you triage that kind of a, a universe of opportunities? Well, that goes to the point where the cadre MVP is very helpful to filter, right? Mm -hmm. So I look at it as if, you know, from when we look at the pipeline, we're curating deals, it's 1A and 1B, market and operator, right? Mm -hmm. The operating partner. Um, I look at it, if it's a bad market or a bad operating partner, generally it's going to fall to the bottom of the list or middle of the list, unless, again, we have an operator who's touting some a deal, then, then we'll spend some time on it. But if it doesn't have a good market or a good operating partner, it's gone, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it if it has both of them, we're, it's going to rise to the top of our pipeline, and we're going to dig in a little bit more. And so we do have also other other technology that we've put together that allows us to really sift through a lot of the data that we see quicker, right? So we can put in, let's say it's an Austin B multifamily asset. We'll put in Austin multifamily B, and it pops up and it'll show us you know, the last 10 to 15 deals that we've seen, it'll show us the metrics. So we can compare that deal to a lot of the deals that we've already seen. And we can get a good sense of the risk adjusted returns for that specific deal. So to your point, it's more about the speed of killing deals than it is the speed of doing deals, right? So when we look at this and we're looking at it saying, hey, we're going to do, you know, whatever, 10, 15 deals in a year, you know, some, some years more, some years less, depending on the market, um, you know, we're able to really kind of dig into these things and and spend time um, trying to find what we think are the the best relative the best relative deals in the market that we're seeing. And you know, so you asked about opportunity size. You know, we we tend to look at kind of fifteen to forty million dollar equity checks. So when you look at leverage, the somewhere between fifty to seventy percent. You know, these deals tend to be fifty to one hundred million in total asset value. Um, where we think there is a sweet spot there where the larger institutions aren't chasing it because to your point, you know, like each deal takes the same amount of time, like a $1 million deal and a billion dollar deal can take, you know, you know, very similar time and energy for the investments team. So our sweet spots kind of in that, you know, 50 to $150 million asset value. Mm -hmm. um, and we do feel like we have a little bit of an edge there and we think that it's unique and, and does have a little bit better, you know, risk adjusted returns that we've seen. Um, but, you know, to, to answer that question, like we're seeing these deals, we're able to move quickly. We have conviction around markets because of the MVP. And then we have conviction around operators because of the relationships that we have with a lot of operators out in the marketplace where we're, we're trying to scale up with some of those, you know, top tier, whether it's, a you know, uh, an office user in Southern California, a multifamily uh, owner in the Southeast, you know, there are you know, um, operators that we tend to lean into because of, of their performance and their track record and the fact that we've done business together and, and, and we know how they think and we know how, how they perform. Interesting. Okay. I want to turn 
to the data for a minute. And, you know, full disclosure, my uh, bachelor's is an information system. So I should know something uh, about data, but it, it didn't really take. Uh, it turned out I wasn't really smart enough for all the computer stuff. So I ended up with all the dummies in finance. Um, no, I kid. But the data, I think financial data is super fascinating because like, like take the Federal Reserve, for instance, so much data, but so much of it is backwards facing. And honestly, I think it's, it's, it's like six months out of date by the time that they act on it. That's probably a conversation for another episode, but it's amazing how much data the federal government releases for free, right? So I imagine a ton of the data input into your model is just public domain government type data, but are, are you are you purchasing data from different sources? Are you scraping it? Could you talk a little bit about where you get data that's actually timely to kind of feed this model to give you that edge? Yeah, well, well first off, um, you know, I will say I have a BBA and an MBA in finance. So I'm one of those dumb <laughs> finance guys. Uh, so no, it all seriousness, I'm the real estate guy. So, you yeah. know, it's interesting when I joined Padre six years ago, you know, a lot of these engineers who know nothing about real estate investing, and I knew nothing about, you know, writing code and, and, and some of the things that they do. So it's been an unbelievable learning experience for me, a steep curve. But yeah. to your question, look, we use public, private, and proprietary data. So we're scraping, you know, lots of data that's out there. Um, we have our own private data, and then, you know, or sorry, we're buying private, um, you know, information as well. And we have proprietary data that we're also using, right? So in aggregate, you know, we, we are augmenting, you know, our commercial real estate team, which has executed tens of billions of dollars of deals, you know, in the U.S. over the last dec several decades mm -hmm. with, you know, a lot of this data that, again, some of it conforms to what we think. And some of it is like, oh, wait a minute, that's interesting. You know, I wouldn't have thought that this market was, you know, was going to perform the way it was. And then we dig into a little bit why. A lot of it is behind the curtain, Andy, but you know, through our data analysis, you know, we just, we develop a model that ultimately allows us to monitor price trends for multiple markets and property pairings, you know, which just really tests relationships between dem demographic and fundamental variable variables, you know, which will tell us what future price growth should be. Um, but we understand that each individual property performance in terms of, you know, these systematic and idiosy idiosyncratic components are going to lead to different results. Um, but, you know, again, we look at it, you know, the data is there to, to inform and shape our conviction mm -hmm. around these markets. But it's really, really important as a real estate guy, as in a real relationship guy to say, OK, we have all this data to your question, like, you know, that we scrape and that we kind of, you know, come up with our own, you know, kind of sense of that market. But you've got to get into the market. You've got to, you know, not every, you know, corner is the same. Not every submarket is the same. Um, you know, understanding where population growth and, you know, demo growth is, is obviously extremely important, but it's digging down deeper into what kinds of jobs are these, you know, higher paying jobs, middle paying jobs, lower paying jobs, which really dictate what type of asset makes more sense to go after, which, you know, whether it's class A multifamily or class B multifamily, when you're looking at the residential side, you know, for office, it, you know, is it urban, is it suburban? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that pull and, and, and push and pull that, that we take and and that ultimately helps us, um, you know, obviously with our investment track record, which I think you've seen, but, uh, you know, uh, obviously we, we tout that as well, but we, we do feel as though um, these MVP markets 
have outperformed the you know the the greater um, you know commercial real estate indexes. So you know you mentioned I, I think I think you mentioned like correlations or machine learning. You know, forgive me if I kind of butcher some of the verbiage here with you know AI algorithms and machine learning, but so your uh, system is looking for correlations between different data points, you know, related to, you know, price appreciation historically that maybe can be modeled out. You know, is there a risk that, you know, the the, the machine learning model is going to find correlations that are almost accidental or like, like, is there, is there a point where, you know, you find a correlation or or job growth or whatever, and then a human has to kind of review that and say, does this make sense from a logical perspective? Because, you know, sometimes a correlation will show up in the data and it will just be like an artifact or, or whatever and not necessarily meaningful. So how do, how do you separate that, you know, signal from noise with the machine learning, with the algorithm and all the data? Yeah, look, I mean, to your point, there's a lot of nuances to it. Look, you know, at the end of the day, we see that the market either is performing well or not well compared to what the overall general market thinks, right? But then there's cap rates and cap rates fluctuate. And not all cap rates are created equally. You know, some people quote trailing threes, some people quote forward. Some so you gotta you have to sift through you know the data where we again we're in an opaque industry where there you know the data you're getting is a generally stale and and b it's not always apples to apples. So it's a making sure we're comparing apples to apples so that we can you know be looking at the right data, but. You know, I'll give you a real life example. We, we bought a deal in Austin, Texas, a couple of years ago, multifamily deal. Okay. And it was a deal where there wasn't a lot of value add, meaning you're not coming in and, and fixing anything. You're not coming in, putting a ton of capital to, you know, get a return on your investment on the capital. It was purely a market bet on a good solid asset that we thought was in a growth market. And, but, you know, look, a lot of people, when we were talking at investment committee, were like, well, you know, you and I talked a little bit before, before this, Andy, and it's like, it's not a secret that Austin is a market a lot of people want to go to. Mm-hmm. Like Austin's not some great secret anymore. As a matter of fact, for years, we've been saying in the real estate business, how do we find the next Austin? So Austin's always been in the, you know, in the vernacular from that standpoint. But guess what? You know, we, we did um, we did our, our data. We went to our data science and said, hey, look, we're looking at Austin right now. Let's try to find a correlation where we can show that where we are in the market today and what people's expectations of growth are and compare that, you know, to your point, looking backward, which is not always the best, but it's all we've got. Right. Mm-hmm. But we were able to find data that showed that, yes, Austin, everyone's thinking Austin's going up. But we we found a, you know, that that point in the cycle, we would actually probably outperform the broader market, um, you know, I guess the broader market uh, perception of growth um, because of certain you know algorithms that we ran. We, we got conviction that it was the right time to buy an Austin at that point in time. And that even though the broader market thinks Austin is going to grow at whatever percent growth, that you know, we were buying at a value that was that made sense. So um, you're, you're really talking about pricing inefficiency then. So it's like it's it's obviously, you know, other investors understand that Nashville and Austin have demographic tailwinds, have a lot of tailwinds that are driving those places forward. And in general, that's priced in. But but how much, you know, how much premium, you know, do you do you price in? And what you're saying is, you know, there might be price inefficiency. So 
So maybe Austin has a, a 50% premium or 100% premium compared to a median home price nationally, but actually it ought to be 120% right now based on the data or whatever. So it can it can be hot, but nevertheless still mispriced. Oh, there's absolutely pricing and efficiencies in the commercial real estate market. I mean, if you just think about the process that we go through, I mean, it's not on an exchange, it's a broker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have operators on the ground who see what's going on. I mean, you know, again, I'll give you a perfect example. And I, I think it's, there's no better way to, to, to kind of describe it to tell you what happened. So, you know, in late 2020, coming out of the pandemic, you know, there were a couple markets that really kind of, you know, stood out to us on our, from our data science. And I'll, I'll give you two of those markets at the time were Phoenix and Tampa. So I said to my team, I'm like, okay, let's try and find the best deals we can find in those markets. So in Tampa, you know, we turned to an operator that we, we've done business with before who owns in Tampa. And I was talking to the gentleman who was running, you know, the East Coast for that, for that firm. And, and he said, hey, look, we're looking at like four or five deals in Tampa right now. And we walked through all those deals. And, and I kind of earmarked one of them. Like, well, there was one deal in particular where it was owned by a family on the West Coast. They only owned one asset on the East Coast. Most of the assets they owned were on the West. So they really weren't focused on Tampa in particular at that time. Mm-hmm. Our partner had an asset, an 80s vintage asset. This was an early 2000s vintage. So all things equal, early 2000s should, should you know, generate higher rents, right? Mm-hmm. Well, our partner had a property no less than a mile as the crow flies, 80s vintage, where they were getting higher rents than this property because it was mismanaged. It was one of these, you know, kind of assets that we saw where I said, okay, early 2000 vintage. So it had good bones, um, had been, you know, in, it, it was institutionally owned, but not really because they hadn't been focused on it. And there was a, not a lot of capital that, it, that had been put into the asset to kind of really push the, push the revenue the way that it should have been. So we saw that, A, look, our market, you know, our, our, at the time it was called the Cadre 15. Now it's the MVP, told us Tampa was going to outperform. So we went in, we said, okay, we saw four or five different deals. We honed in on this deal because of the sub-market we thought was growing because of certain um, companies were coming in this location. And then we identified an asset because of our operating partner who said, hey, look, there is a real opportunity here to outperform the market. There's a pricing inefficiency here, right? Because you know a lot of people were buying because cap, you know, were buying lower cap rates because you know there was low debt and people had priced in some growth. Well, in this instance, we thought not only there was a market growth, but there was a big mark to market that the, the that the you know general market wasn't pricing in because of that inefficiency and mismarket mm-hmm. or mispricing. And then there was also a big um, value add component that again we thought we had better transparency on pricing because our operator was doing it on a in that same submarket down the street on a worse product and was generating you know really strong return on their investment. So. We went in, we bought that asset, and sure enough, you know, you know, we've been able to outperform not only, you know, what we and what, what the market thought, but what we thought in terms of rental growth, in terms of return on investment for that capital. So, you know, when you're looking at it and saying, yeah, is, is there inefficiencies? Absolutely. And in, in the real estate environment, you know, you have, you know, a, a, a process that's not, again, it's opaque, it's, it's, it's a little bit archaic, you know, but it's what we do and it's how we make money, it's how we transact. But having, the you know the MVP point to Tampa, having a local operator on the ground who who knows the market really well and mm-hmm. knows it real time, right, Andy? Like the information they told us was because they were managing an asset in that submarket 
nobody knew what they were getting on rents. They, you know, eventually people. Well, that's that's so interesting because it that story they just told it shows the value of you have the data, the modeling, but then you also have that operator giving you that proprietary information and that local market knowledge, and it's really the combination of all that information, you know, gives you that edge. One one thing I'm curious about. Because the, the report that I reviewed, and I think there was even a press release that I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Um, the press release announced Cadre's MVPs for 2022. So these were the three markets that were MVPs in each of the three sectors that you analyze, Charlotte, Raleigh, and Nashville. So these um, triple crowns, so they, they were favorable in, I guess, office, industrial, and, and multifamily. D- do you find that, you know, generally speaking, if an MSA is strong for one of these sectors, is it usually strong overall or is this, is it all over the place for industrial versus multifamily? Yeah, I think it's, it is um, unique between industrial and multifamily. I mean, a lot of it is like for industrial reasons why they're strong. Are they near port? Are they, you know, uh, you know, from a truck perspective, are they eight hours within within an eight hour drive of the city, right? Because the more population you can have for a you know an eight hour drive for a trucker is going to be more valuable. So um, you know the, the things that we look at for multifamily and industrial you know are very different. There's look there's some correlation and there's some overlap, um, but you know I would say multifamily and office are probably a little bit more correlated than industrial would be because um, you know the industrial it's okay is it last mile is it something that it's a great Port, um, and it's distributing, you know, down the coast, up and down the coast. Is it, you know, Chicago is obviously a great industrial market, or at least is, you know, a huge industrial market. I'm not going to say it's great, but it's huge. Um, why is it there? Because it's, you know, the middle of the country. Dallas, the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and I am a Chicago guy, so I could. Chicago wasn't it at the center of a railroad, like a bunch of railroads, and that's pretty much. Yeah. Well, it also had the Great Lakes, which you know, at the time. Yeah. You know, you could get, you know, boats were coming in from, from, you know, uh, from Europe from, from that standpoint. That's a long time ago. I mean, you know, look, if you want to go back and talk about the history of <laughs> cities, I love it. I mean, I, I really, you know, I drive through Illinois all the time because my kids have hockey games all the way down in the south of Illinois. We drive by and it's like, well, why is Peoria not flourishing the way it was, you know, 80 years ago? Well, you look, it was on the river, but the river's not used anymore because we have trains, we have highways. You sure. know, there are different ways and more efficient ways of getting the product to the customer. And so that's killed cities over, over centuries, right? And- well, uh, speaking of change, and I, I have to ask because multifamily, industrial and office, is office dead? I mean, is this is this the least attractive sector in the sectors that you're looking at? Or, or do you have kind of a different take on office than, than the default take in 2022? Yeah, Andy, I could talk for hours on on office. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of dynamics going on here, right? Which office office investing is cyclical. You're you know, it's it's a lot about vintage and, and you know, office, you know, when we talk about real estate and why it's a good inflation hedge, right? It's can we mark to market quickly? Well, you know, with hotel, you can mark to market that day, right? Because you're leasing it out day by day. With multifamily, right. it tends to be 12 month leases. So you can capture a lot of the upside with office, depending on, you know, the type of office, but like big CBD office buildings are seven, 10, 15 year leases. So it takes more time to reset. Um, 
but it's also the cash flow. Sometimes it's misleading because there's so much capital needed to release these tenants, you know, with these office buildings, a lot of times the cash flow gets eaten up. So it's all about, you know, a lot of times if you're going in basis and your exit, you know, it's, 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 so it's vintage. It's, you know, when are you buying? Um, you know, 2020, obviously, you know, really hit off this part um, for obvious reasons that we don't really need to go into. I think everyone's pretty aware of that. So what, as we sit at the end of 22 going into 23, what's happening? I think a couple things. One, there is obviously the health, people going back to the office, but there are a lot of people who want to be hybrid workers. But what's happening, we're seeing is as we head into a potential recession, there's a lot of layoffs occurring just this last week. I mean, Amazon, 10,000 people, Facebook, you know, so I think what's going to happen is more and more um, of these CEOs are going to, you know, lean back into, hey, look, being in the office is important. It's, you know, these, these companies didn't spend billions of dollars on office campuses because they thought it, it was inefficient to be in an office together. Yeah, you know, it, Dan, it really does feel like the leverage in, I, you hit the nail on the head. It feels like in the last seven days, the leverage has kind of swung from one extreme to the other. And I, I think that the employment market, the job market, I think we're going to see it kind of invert and flip pretty quickly, Look, unfortunately, you know, because I'm it, old school. I love being in the office. I think yeah. I see collaboration go up. I see efficiency go up. Look, there are certain things that are efficient. And I'm not I'm not saying you should be in the office five days a week, like Fridays work from home. I think that's great. I think, you know, you need to balance your work and life a little bit. You know, I think a lot of people probably went a little bit too extreme one way or the other, you know, over the last you know year or so. Yeah. And I, I do think being in the office. The five-day weekend. Yeah. I mean, look, being in the <laughs> office three or four days as a young 20-something professional, I look yeah. back 20 years ago, I benefited from listening to, you know, my bosses. I also benefited from having my peers, like I spent, you know, 100 hours a week working and you know, it'd be, you know, midnight on a Wednesday night and I'm stuck on a problem. I turn, you know, to the cube to my left and say, hey, Brian, you know, I I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And, you know, if I was at home, either I wouldn't be able to call him at midnight because that's that's late or I'd maybe email him. Are you up? And it's it's it just yeah. becomes inefficient. Plus, I got to tell you, we've started going more and more in the office. And when I'm in there, my team's there. I can kind of say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What are you guys seeing? And you can get really spontaneous value to the company from that interaction. And I just think there's efficiencies. Look, it's not every industry that's like that, but I think it, it's a lot more that are like that that aren't. And so I think what's going to happen is there's going right now in the office market, you've got 10 to 15% of the stock in, in markets that are getting 80% of the demand. Mm -hmm. um, newer products, cooler, you know, uh, you know, the you know, I, you know, in Chicago, because I'm here, Fulton Market, you know, gets the majority of the demand because it's where these younger, you know, folks want to be. And, you know, look, that's what you want. You want a recruiting tool. Um, I think in the next two, three years, we'll see uh, a shift back to going to the office. Again, not five days a week, but three, four days a week. And and I think it, it benefits these the younger talent to be like, look, if, if employee A and employee B are the exact same, I'm not going to you know, demo it, but they're the exact same person. One's going to the office three days a week and their bosses are there. The other one isn't. Who's going to get promoted? And that's mm -hmm. going to help. Who's going to learn more? Um, I just think it, it helps to be in the office. You can do some remote working and look, half my job is on the road, right, Andy? Like I'm going yeah. to markets, I'm seeing deals, I'm talking on conferences, panels, meeting people. So I'm used to kind of being on phones. I love what happened in 2020 because the Zooms are better. I think Zooms 
do give you a little bit more of that um, personal touch, but it's not the same as shake, you know, being in the, being in the office together, seeing someone in 3d and, and really driving a connection. So office though, right now is very tough. Look, interest rates are up big. Um, the cost of capital is up big. Um, you know, you're going to run into mo- a lot of office assets were bought, you know, in 18, 19, 20 with, you know, three to five year debt. Well, what does that mean? That's coming up. So, you know, the debt capital markets, if you just think all things equal, the cash, you know, if, if income's the same on the asset, which it's not, but if it was, you know, your borrowing costs is going up 2x um, because, you know, where you could have borrowed at three and a half, you know, a year ago now is 7%. So, you know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the short term headwinds, I mean, 100% agreed, but I, I like that you have, I don't want to say contrarian, but, uh, but a little bit more of that, you know, bullish long term viewpoint on office. So I'm just curious, do you think, are you still looking at office deals into 2023 or is it sort of a a wait and see for that specific sector for cadre right now? Well, I always say my point on that, Andy, is I want to see every deal, good or bad. I want to see it, right? That's that funnel we talked about earlier. I want to see those thousand data points so I can do the one best deal, right? But, you know, are we, are we going to lean into an office deal right now? I would say it's a very low probability, given the fact that unless you have to sell right now, you're not selling an office building. So unless we have a distressed seller, it's going to really be hard to have conviction around where where the pricing would be for that seller to be forced to kind of sell. Now, we're, I just read an article that JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank are thinking about selling their commercial loan balances now, selling them out. So that's the first domino to fall. If you go back to 08, 09, 10, you know, obviously... You know, I invested right after you know the GFC. When you look at the office trades, well, first, you know, the, the debt is sold, you know, at a discount. Um, you know, the lenders are going to sell because they don't like to foreclose. Um, but then that person's either going to buy it and foreclose on it, or buy it and work with the, you know, the operator to extend and, and and get them through the next couple of years. And but that really starts to set the floor, right? You start to see valuations until you see the floor. It's going to be hard to gain conviction on value right now. So we are looking, but um, it would be it has to be extremely compelling for us to dive in. I think in 23, there will be some interesting buying opportunities. That's why when you look at the products we're, we're, we're putting out there, I would say half of our time is spent right now on still on the housing market in some way, shape or form, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's multifamily investing, SFR, you know, student housing. And the other half, I say we're opportunistically looking at office, industrial, and hospitality acquisitions. Um, and you know, so from that standpoint, I do think over the next year or two, there's going to be some pretty compelling office opportunities. But it's you know, you've got to know what you're doing, what you're buying, you know, understand the capital, and having a great operating partner who knows how to lease these things and knows what assets will lease and what won't, because you will have winners and losers. Um, and you know, look, we saw trends before the pandemic kind of shifting to the suburbs and shifting to these secondary markets, you know, mm-hmm. like a Charlotte and Nashville. And those are the types of assets that we bought, you know, pre-pandemic from an office perspective. And I, we think that the trends are just going to accelerate and that, you know, those markets are going to have real good opportunities. So that's why when you look at, you know, kind of the cadre 15 on the office front, you know, you're not seeing, you know, San Francisco or New York in there. Um, you're seeing some of these, you know, kind of secondary markets, but, you know, one of the things you asked is, you know, it, it just because someone's, you know, kind of uh, fundamentally we think is interesting in, in the office world is it 
obviously fundamentally good in the multifamily. Philadelphia is a good example. And office, we think there's a lot of potential tailwinds over the next couple of years. Again, finding at the right basis. But for multi, we don't see that. But for industrial and office, we like the Philadelphia market. But in multifamily, we think it's a little bit oversupplied, overpriced, and the and the the, the cap rates aren't as compelling on a, when you look at IRRs on a risk-adjusted basis. I like that. So so sector by sector, and I will say, just uh, my personal two cents. If if you guys are looking hard at an office deal, then given what you said, then I'd probably look at it hard too, right? Because if it's if it's uh, you know that much of an opportunity that it does rise to the top, then I I personally would be like, okay, I want to I want to see what this deal looks like. So that being said, I know Cadre has different options, different investment options available for high net worth accredited investors. So. I know that, that you all offer deal-by-deal deal investments, diversified portfolios, and you also have the Cadre Horizon Fund that's more focusing on defensive income-oriented investments. So could you tell us a little bit more about these different products and, and what type of investor goal that each product might be uh, appropriate for? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we have, so to your point, we have kind of two, two you know, flagship funds. Um, we had raised in, in 2020 our first in a, in a series of call it value add funds. Um, we're finishing investing that right now. We're going to launch fund two early next year. Um, so that value add fund will again, you know, it'll be more focused on, you know, you'll have, uh, you know, again, similar to what I was saying before, both funds, similar strategy of looking at probably half, you know, uh, residential sector and then half, you know, opportunities of looking at office, industrial and, and, and hotel. Um, but, you know, we also have the Horizon Fund, which you mentioned, which is more of a core plus fund, longer dated. We're looking to grow the value of those assets over a longer period of time, mm-hmm. um, probably a little bit more cash flow oriented, um, a little bit lower return profile on the Horizon Fund, but longer dated stuff that we want to own five, seven, 10 years. Uh, the value add fund is going to focus more on, you know, we definitely are going to look at cash flow, but we're going to look at ways of augmenting that cash flow, whether it's you know, through additional capital to generate um, outsized, um, you know, additional, you know, uh, uh, cash flow, or whether it's, you know, kind of buying, you know, a little bit more opportunistically an office building or something like that, where we think, hey, it's more of a three to five year time horizon, shorter term, shorter time horizon on the the value add fund, a little higher returns. um, And then on the horizon fund, it's four plus more downside protection to your point, Andy, um, both good risk adjusted returns, just different profiles. One's, you know, trying to build uh, wealth over a, you know, a longer period of time. The other one is shorter, taking advantage of maybe mispriced assets within the within the market at that point in time. I really like that product mix. I mean, it would seem to me that would allow you to take advantage and be, be flexible uh, where there's an opportunity with those multiple strategies, multiple risk profiles that you know you can execute uh, on an opportunity while still keeping it within a fund uh, you know that's aligned with a particular risk return profile. So that being said, Dan, where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about Cadre and your research and all of your products? Yeah, so I mean, uh, cadre.com uh, if they go there, we're going to have you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of the research that we're doing that we're publishing will be on cadre.com. You'll be able to read more about the Horizon Fund um, you'll be also able to read about, you know, the, 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 what we're doing with the Cadre Direct Access Fund today. And, and then eventually we're going to be launching that you know, in the first quarter. So you'll be able to kind of see more updates about that. 
Um, and you can read about at cadre.com slash MVP. You can read about the cadre MVP that you mentioned um, and that we've spoken about in terms of how um, we're, how we're driving what we think is outsized alpha in in the commercial real estate investment phase, but uh, place. But you know, look, you know, we just launched that Horizon Fund. Your point, you know, this is an investment vehicle aimed to drive really long term value for our investors, um, and you know, it's really more income oriented investors. And ultimately, we think we deliver the benefit of the yields and long term growth of, of real estate, and all of that can be. Uh, you can see some of the deals that we did. Um, so there are deals on the platform today that you can either invest in or you can see um, examples of deals where we've come in and, and obviously made money for our investors. So it's all on cadre.com, Andy. Awesome. So for our listeners, I'll be sure to put links in all of those with the link to the MVP page, as well as obviously to cadre.com in our show notes. And our show notes are always available on altdb.com slash podcast. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today, discussing you know the the very unique approach to market selection that Cadre has. I really appreciate your sharing your insights with us. Great. Well, I appreciate the time. It's always always fun to talk about what's going on in the, in the real estate investment environment. Um, it's moving quickly, you know. But you know, in in our industry, things tend to tend to move a little slower on the private side as they do the public side. Um, so we also, you know, spend a lot of time analyzing what's going on in the public markets and really using that to to shape, uh, you know, how we we view value. And uh, we think it's a really good opportunity today to be investing in commercial real estate over a longer period of time, which why we you know, launched the Horizon Fund. But it's also why we have this value add fund to take advantage of some of the price dislocations that we think are going to, you know, uh, be prevalent over the next you know six to twelve months. Absolutely. I love that approach, Dan. Thanks again. Thanks, Andy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Music.